You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. If you have your copy of Scripture, will you stand with me? As we stand on the solid rock of God's Word, we're in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Today and the next three sermons, there's a little sub-series here worked into Acts that I call the Spirit of Preaching. And we'll be talking a little bit about not just the sermon that we're, we're reading here of Peter's, but we're talking about, again, the preaching of the word and why this moment we share together is important. So let's hear what Peter does here. It says, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk. Now, let's stop for a moment. If you weren't here last week, that might be slightly out of context and you may not understand what's going on. Remember, when the spirit broke loose in the church, things were happening. People were getting excited. And so some of the mockers accused these early Christians of, well, uh, getting uh, into the, uh, the wine a little too early in the day. And so that's why Peter, he answers that critique and begins to preach. And he says... For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he says, not only am I going to tell you they're not drunk, I'm going to tell you what's going on. Because the Bible has predicted this. The prophet Joel said, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And then one of the most profound passages of scripture that we have in God's holy word, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Let's learn about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to allow your spirit to have free reign in this room. And God, I say again to that person who is here today and seeking, looking for truth, looking for you, God, I pray that they will leave here knowing that they do have a personal relationship with you, that they will call on your name and be saved. And Lord, I pray that you will help me and each one of us in this room to realize that we have opportunity every day to be a gospel witness in this world. Pour out your spirit through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, Back at Christmas time, we were in the book of Luke, and we talked about those songs that uh, uh, precluded or started out or were the preamble of Jesus coming. One in particular, remember Mary's song, the Magnificat, beautiful song about Jesus. So here's the deal. Christianity truly began with a song, as we see there in Luke 2, but the church began with a sermon. Now, I think this is an important uh, distinction to make Christianity and our Christian faith it does begin in a song. I don't think it's an accident that we begin our services with music. 
because we have a song to sing. There is joy in Jesus, and we need to sing about it, and we see it right there. Even before Jesus is born, we see the songs of the faith being in the center. But as Peter stands up, and remember, remember the context here. He is surrounded by what we Baptists would call just plum craziness. Uh, people are, are experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. Sadly, too many of us Baptists, uh, we, don't, we don't even know what that looks like. But here we see a picture of it, what it can look like. And so people were really getting excited about the gospel, getting excited about what God was doing. And so Peter gets up and he begins to preach. And so every Sunday, we should sing songs to our Lord and we should open up the word of God and preach. Now, let me talk about what this is. It's kind of weird to kind of describe what preaching is, kind of why I'm preaching. But let me give you what I think is one of the best analogies, and I read this years ago, the same book I was reading this morning by John R. W. Stott. He has a little book called uh, Between Two Worlds, and he has a, it's a masterful uh, help for us to understand this role of preaching that Peter is showing us in Acts 2, and that hopefully we can experience here together. It's the picture of a bridge. In one sense, my job is to build a bridge between our day, this moment that we're in here in our culture, all the way back 2,000 years ago, plus here on the day of Pentecost, it is my job to try to help you understand what was going on there in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit fell. So I'm a bridge between the ancient past and the present. That's one of my jobs. But the most important job of the preacher, and I would argue, and I am going to argue, it's the job of every believer. We are to serve as a bridge between this material world and a place called heaven. Or if we don't receive Christ, there is a place called hell. And we'll talk about that some here today. The judgment of the Lord is a big part of Peter's sermon. So we want to touch on that before we leave. But notice the analogy of the bridge. It's important for us to understand what was going on historically. We need to understand our Christian faith is not... It doesn't come from a make-believe make -believe mythological world. It happened in the real world. And that's an important part of what we preach. But remember that Jesus came because we are sinners and we need deliverance from sin. And he wants to gather his people together to be with him forever in heaven. A sinful being cannot be with God forever. The only way a sinful being can be with God forever is if his or her sins are forgiven. And we know that's only through the blood of Jesus. So we preach so that people can be encouraged, so that we can teach them about the world we live in and psychology and all these things are perfectly fine to hear from the pulpit. But ultimately, when we preach, when we sit down and hear a message from the word, we are always asking the question, are you a believer in Jesus? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, are you sharing that truth with the world? That's what we need to get to understand here today. And let me say this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We see that in verse 21. But let me just very quickly show you in verses 17 and 18 that it's not just Peter that is supposed to be preaching the gospel. In fact, he quotes Joel here and says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. I believe 
That is God's word telling us that every one of us have a role to play. Yes, as the pastor of Ridgecrest Baptist Church, I am to build bridges between those who hear in this room and heaven. I'm supposed to do that. But do you realize that every single one of us, young or old, and the verse, next verse there speaks of male servants and female servants. It doesn't matter where you are in life. We are all called, if we've been touched by the grace of Jesus Christ, we are all called to share Jesus Christ with the world. And I want to challenge you with that today because I believe that many of us have taken a back seat. We have sat down on the couch of Christianity and we are not moving forward. I don't see that in the early church. I do not believe it is a part of who we are. We have to get serious about sharing church. Each one of us, we should get serious about sharing our faith. Now, let me say this as a little word of warning. Our efforts can't do the saving, but God does the saving through our efforts. It's the only way I know to say this, that the power for someone to be saved from their sins, I can't argue you into heaven, but God can work through preaching. He can work through you as you share your faith. Working through you, people can find Jesus. So when was the last time you poured out your heart to a hurting lost soul? That's the question. Because God is the one who saves, but he does the saving through our efforts. He's chosen us to be ambassadors of grace. He has called us to share this message. And I want to tell you, it should not just be shared from a pulpit. It should be shared at work, at school, and everywhere we go. That's what preaching is. Preaching isn't just in a pulpit on Sunday at a church, but preaching and teaching the word is what we do when we love people. We've been touched by Jesus, and by the power of the Spirit, we share this message with anyone who will listen. So let me show you three key elements to the beginning part of Peter's sermon that I believe are fundamental fundamental in what we do in terms of sharing the gospel. And Peter brings them all out for us. First, I want to talk about how salvation is offered to all. I've already touched on this in the sense that we see that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But there's so much going on here that shows this universal aspect of the gospel message. Now, let me say this. When we study Christian history, church history, the early Christians were not bound to buildings property, or bylaws. The early Christians were bound only to Jesus and unleashed upon the world uh, with the Holy Spirit's power. Now, I want you to look at this quote for a minute, and I want you to realize what I'm saying. In the first 200 years of the church, I can show you pretty, pretty clearly that the church was not big into big buildings. They didn't have big building projects. They didn't have lots of property. They were too poor and persecuted to have big buildings and property. They wouldn't have had formal bylaws like we have today. They would have just been men and women that had been touched by the gospel message of Jesus, sharing that message wherever they went. Well, when we look at church history, by the third or fourth century, that had changed. Buildings became primary. Property and power and politics took over the Christian message in many ways. Look at the history of the church. About the 4th century, 325, if, you're, if you want exact numbers, you start to see a complete change in the attitude. Now, keep in mind, in the first two or three generations of the church, men and women, just like me and you, went out and shared the gospel, and they didn't let anything stop them. 
They didn't worry about the people in Jerusalem that had crucified Jesus. They told them about Jesus. They went on to uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They didn't let culture or language or fear keep them from sharing the gospel. They didn't worry about uh, big budgets. They didn't worry about buildings and property and bylaws. They worried about just loving people well in the name of Jesus. So let me say this. We do have a building. We do have property here. We do have bylaws. And all those things may make you uh, just as excited as can be. But what I'm learning is, is that the church today is not ever going to get excited about the building that they gather in. They're not going to get excited about how much property they own and if they can expand. And I don't know anybody in their right mind that gets excited about bylaws except for lawyers. But they're important, let me tell you. Because then when the lawyers get involved, having bylaws is important. But I want you to know you're not going to get excited about those things. So what do you get excited about when it comes to your Christian faith? Well, for me, let me speak personally, and I hope some of you have had this experience too, of all the things that can get you on fire for Jesus. There is nothing quite like witnessing in the name of Jesus and seeing somebody come to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I am convinced that the church today is not experiencing revival, nor is it very excited about the work it does, because very few of us are seeing people saved in the name of Jesus. If you want to have an amazing experience as a Christian, if you want to have your heart on fire, then share the gospel. And it may take a while, but when you see someone come from darkness into light, go from hopelessness to hope and heaven, I believe it will rattle your world. It'll change your perspective. It is what the church needs today. I am convinced that we as a church, we are in the last days. Now look at the text. That's what Joel says. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares. Now, I think Peter is claiming that passage and saying those last days are upon us. So some of you may be saying, well, that was 2,000 years ago when this sermon was preached. Are we still in the last days? Absolutely. The church age, the age of the church, these are the last days. That is a clear understanding, I think, of the Old and New Testament. We are in that age where we are in the age of the church. These are the last days. Now, you and I would say 2,000 years seems like an awful long time. But remember what the scriptures say. A day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day to God. So don't hold him accountable to your calendar. Don't hold him account uh, accountable to your understanding of time. God will work, and he will come again when he determines to do so. But what we need to see here is, is that all flesh, all of the sons and daughters of the common people of Jerusalem, even the servants, they were eligible for salvation and also they were eligible to be those who would go out and share the gospel. These people didn't have seminary training. In fact, they hadn't even had years to be in Bible studies like many of you. But they were filled with the Spirit and guided by with the rails, as it were, that the apostles provided. They were able to take the gospel into the world. I think today with seminaries and educated pastors and things of that nature, it's not a bad thing. But I think what it does is, is it causes us to think that only a select few people are called to share the gospel. So let me just say this. If the gospel is open to all who will believe, then all who do believe ought to be sharing the gospel. I think this passage is, is telling us that. I think this very first sermon is reminding us that we should be living out our faith and sharing our faith with the world. I believe, though, that this is where it gets difficult. We need to remember that Peter has to start by saying, uh, those of you who are mocking, hey, we're not 
drunk. We're, we're not under the influence of anything but the Holy Spirit. I think what we have to realize is, is that we are going into a world that is not going to want to initially hear our message. We need to get ready for pushback. And we can't be afraid of that. But we cannot be afraid of sharing the gospel message and to tell people that they need to be saved by grace. Here's a fact. If a person feels like they were never lost, how can they ever be saved? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit alone can convince us of that reality. And you know sin is a barrier. Jesus' death on the cross overcomes every barrier. Let's park there for just a moment. I think that when we are believing that the gospel is for everyone, that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved, we also realize that it is only by grace. And it is the Spirit, not you, not me, that has to convict someone that they are sinners. When I use that word lost, in, in the church's understanding of the term, what we mean is they are not part of Jesus' flock. Lost in the sense of outside of that flock. So when we say that a person is lost, we're saying that they, are, they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And they are, from the perspective of the shepherd, they are lost. They're out apart from God and his grace. That sin barrier can only be broken down by the blood of Jesus. I think we need to uh, just put it this way. If you are here today and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, the fact that you're here means that maybe you have an open heart. So don't take this the wrong way, but a heart that is not in right relationship with Jesus is in rebellion against Jesus. Now you may say, nobody's called me a rebel in all my life. Maybe they call you a rebel every day. I don't know. But what I mean by that is, is a rebellious heart doesn't necessarily manifest itself in some image of rebellion like you're thinking right now. But what it really means is, is that your decisions and your desires are the most important thing. That, that God is not the Lord. So if, if we use that word Lord as the king, an image of a king or a boss, what rebellion looks like for you is instead of letting God guide you in life, you're saying no to that. And you're saying, I'm going to be the boss of my own life. So in that sense, that's lostness, that's rebellion, and there needs to be a change. But what does that look like? That's our second point here, the courage to call out and receive. If we begin to fall under conviction that we are in rebellion against God, so we start by saying, okay, I don't think I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Yes, I think I understand what you're saying, Jeremy, that, that my sin is rebellion against God, that I've, since I don't have a personal relationship with him, I'm not really letting the word, I'm not letting the truth of God's word guide me, and so maybe that is rebellion. So what, what's next? Well, you have to make a decision. Now, many of you in this room, I, I know, because I, I know you well enough to know that you've shared Jesus with people in your lifetime. You, you've, maybe some of you have shared Jesus and, and watched as people were saved. Many of you have testimonies of being used by God to see someone come to faith. But if you've shared the gospel one time or 10 times or 100 times, I don't know how many times you've shared it, but my guess would be that you have failed more often than you've succeeded. In other words, most of the time when we share the gospel, the person on the other end, in fact, when I preach the gospel, the person on the other end says, thanks but no thanks, I'm getting out of here as soon as I can. 
And when you're having conversations with people, it's the same thing. You will find, when I was younger, I, I felt like that if I had 10 gospel conversations, I might have one fruitful encounter. That's what I used to say. That was 25 years ago. I think the number may be higher. I think the stats are stacked against us even more today because most people are perfectly content in their lack of a personal relationship with Jesus. And as long as life is treating them relatively well, they don't feel any pressure to change. And then they talk to you and you tell them about Jesus and you tell them that they're in rebellion and they don't like it. Now, why is it though that most people reject the gospel. Well, I think it was true in Peter's day. I think it's true in ours as well. Now, Peter, of course, we know at the end of this chapter, 3,000 souls were saved. But what we see here is, is when the Spirit gets involved, all things are possible. But I think one of the reasons why so many people, even when they hear the gospel, even if they feel conviction, aren't following Christ is because of pride. I think that most people are too ashamed to admit that they have a problem of any sort and then to ask for help, especially help from God. Those of us who have been around the block a few times, we know that human nature is kind of that way. Sometimes a person really needs help and you offer it to them and they're like, no, I can do this myself. Now, it seems to be a curse of of mankind, not so much womankind. Uh, uh, most of you dads, there have been times where you could have got a little help from somebody, but you're too stubborn, and then you fall off the ladder. It's your own fault. You're too stubborn to ask for help, all right? Now, I don't know, I've never had that kind of stubbornness in my life. I'm so far above that. But I know that human beings can be stubborn that way. But when it comes to spirituality, I think that stubbornness is increased by a factor of 10. Because when God gets involved, when we begin to realize that we are broken by sin and need help from above, we just entrench in our pride. We are, are, are convinced that we are a good enough person. And let me tell you who's telling you uh, that you're a good enough person. It's Satan. Satan wants you to believe that you are a good enough person, that you don't need Jesus. The devil would love to keep you lost. He loves to keep you in the cloud. He loves to keep you in a place where you are trying to fix your problems your own way. You all know this is true, but our counseling offices here in Springfield and really around the world today are always full of hurting, sad, guilt-ridden people. And I want you to hear my heart here. I am thankful for good therapists who lovingly care for us. When we have a bout with depression, if we're struggling with anxiety, if we're going through a hard season with our jobs, our, our relationships, I thank God that we have counselors that we can go and see. But here's the deal. In the world today, counseling is a way to try to mitigate what the, the, the early Christians would have just called a sin problem. Now, depression, things like that, I know I'm not calling you a sinner if you're depressed, but I want you to hear me out. So many of the things that break our hearts, when you boil it down to the essence of how you got to that brokenness, I'll just about promise you that there was a sin in there somewhere. And our culture refuses to talk about a sin problem, and we're trying to fix our heart problems in any way we can other than God. Listen, God knows about your brokenness. He knows about every sin in your life, and he loves you a bunch. And when he begins to convict you of your sinfulness, 
That is a gift. When your heart is broken by your sin, I know it doesn't feel good, but that is one of the greatest gifts God can give you because that brokenness because of your sin is what leads to Jesus and to healing. We need to be willing to say these things in a world that doesn't want to talk about sin. I remember as a young pastor, I got brought into a situation where some people were having some disagreements and uh, they'd gone to a counselor and this counselor was not a believer. And we sat in the room and they talked about all these things that were wrong, all these, you know, you know, problems and how people had failed and not done the right thing. And, you know, I listened for a while, but, but I'm not the most patient person in the world. You guys learned that a couple weeks ago when I talked about my, my proclivity to be very impatient at stoplights. Well, just that, that tra- kind of translates into all of my life. So I sat there as long as I could. And then finally I had to just say, you know, one thing that we're not talking about here is sin. There is sin between these two people. There is sin that needs to be dealt with. And we're not talking about that sin. And this counselor said, now listen, we don't talk that way in this office. And I said, well, we talk that way when I'm in this office. Because... We believe that this problem can't be worked out with some psychological theory. In this particular instance, it wasn't anything psychological. It was spiritual. And until we acknowledge that many of our problems have a, a, a spiritual component. Now, you heard what I said. I, I believe there is a psychological component we need to consider. But many times, we need to be honest about the fact that we have sinned. And then other times, people need to be honest about the fact that they've sinned against us. And when we understand that, when we are convicted of that, and we cry out to Jesus for forgiveness, there is the beginning of healing that takes place there that can bring us into a right relationship with God and with others. Hear this. If you call out with sincerity, Jesus will answer you with salvation. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Friend, if you will cry out to Jesus and ask for a personal relationship with him, that will begin a process of healing in your life that you desperately need. You need that healing from above. We are told that our Lord is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1.19. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 tells us, that we are to, in fact, it, it commands us to boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Go get help wherever you can get it if you're hurting. But just know this, you can also go to God. You can go before the throne of God. You can uh, come to a pastor or a fellow Christian or a Christian and find some healing. No matter who you are, it's important that we all own up to our sins. We need to realize that only God can forgive us of our sins. We need grace. If you'll look here, it speaks of God pouring out his spirit. Notice this, verse 17, on all flesh. Let me tell you, we need grace to be poured out. We need a torrential downpour of grace to wash away the piles of garbage staining our souls. I was joking in the first service, so if you're not uh, from a Baptist background, know this. I am totally kidding. But when it comes to grace, folks, we are truly Baptists. We don't need just a sprinkling. We need immersion. You need a full bath in grace. A couple sprinkles ain't going to get it. Sprinkles are good for your donuts. It's not good enough for your sins. You need immersed in grace. We do baptism the way we do it. We plunge you under the water. It's a picture of, of being dead in your sins and rising up to new life. Let me tell you, you need a complete bath in God's grace. 
You need as much as possible. And I love the fact that God does that. He provides the grace we need. Only God can reveal the filth within. And only the blood of Jesus can wash it away. And it is the spirit that opens up our hearts to this reality. But I want to tell you, a part of preaching today where I think we're failing the most, not just preachers, not just churches, but I think whole denominations, is talking about the hard things, about death and judgment and a place called hell. So let me finish with this. Salvation from death and the hope of heaven. It is hard to have spiritual conversations with the ones we love. It has always been the case. We've alluded to several times already in the book of Acts that the hardest place to preach the gospel would have been in Jerusalem because that's where people, uh, th- those were, were, where people were that, that were known entities. The, the 12 disciples that are, are 11 disciples standing around Peter as he's preaching, some of the people out in that crowd were people who had, had actively sought to have Jesus crucified. The hardest place to preach the gospel was Jerusalem. I think we need to just admit that the hardest place we're going to have to preach the gospel will be in our own Jerusalem with our family members. Sharing with the uttermost, it has its own challenges, but sharing with those we know is so tough. To share the gospel, to preach the gospel, is not to say trust in Jesus or else, but I think sometimes people hear that when they're lost in their sin. If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus and someone starts talking about hell, That person is immediately going to say, I don't want to talk anymore. You're being too harsh. In fact, I think that that's what the world wants us to hear, is that message of, well, we like Jesus, and we like the the soft, nice, loving, gracious statements, but you know those statements where Jesus talks about hell? We don't want none of that. But the reality is, if we don't talk about that, then there really is no reason to talk about love or grace. If we can't talk about hell and judgment with people, then what use is there to speak of grace and love? Why would you need grace if there is no judgment? Why would you want God's love if there is no hell? You see, you can't talk about grace if there isn't something on the other end that's negative. You can't talk about God loving you if there's the potential for God's wrath. Listen, we need grace from God. We need him. We need to know the realities of judgment. We cannot forget that this is an important part of the gospel we preach. It is God's message, not ours. And God's word is giving us warning. Let me show you very quickly. Look at verses 19 and 20. And I will show wonders. This is uh, Joel again. Above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor and smoke. That's verse 19. Look at verse 20. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now listen, those passages are talking about kind of the apocalyptic reality at the end of time. And when you extrapolate, when you go into the book of Revelation and you see what that is, it is talking about nothing more and nothing less than the judgment of God on sinners. When a person chooses not to follow Jesus, when they say no to a personal relationship with Jesus, they are putting themselves in a position of judgment on the day of the Lord. Notice it says there, the day of the Lord. That's an Old Testament concept, Yom Yahweh. It is something that the Hebrews understood was coming, the day when God would come and bring justice to the world. He brings justice to those who are righteous and faithful. He brings judgment 
on those who have rejected the word of God and in particular have rejected the message of salvation in Jesus. 1,600 years ago, not quite 2,000 years ago, which is what Peter, how far back we have to go to think about Peter's sermon here in Acts 2. But if we go back 1,600 years to the city of Constantinople in the late 4th century, there was a preacher there named Chrysostom. And you've heard me quote him before, perhaps his name means Golden Mouth. So like when they nickname you Golden Mouth, you're probably a decent preacher, okay? So he knew what he was doing. And he's preaching this very text. And I was reading this old, old sermon, a 1,600-year-old sermon. And he's talking about judgment. And he's talking about hell. And he says, once more, I am compelled to seem harsh, disagreeable, stern. And he says to his crowd, but what can I do? He says, be not offended, but give heed to the things spoken, that you may attain unto, unto eternal blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord. Preaching has always necessitated talking about judgment. And no preacher should ever want to talk about judgment and hell. But the problem is in our culture, nobody wants to talk about judgment and hell. And that's why people aren't getting saved, because they have no fear of judgment or hell. If there is no judgment and there is no hell, then all of us are just trying to live the best lives we can, and we need to leave one another alone. But we believe in a place called heaven, and we also believe in a place called hell, and we believe in a person named Jesus. And if we don't have a personal relationship with that person named Jesus, the Bible says very clearly that we will be under the judgment of God. And for people to get saved, they need to be saved, and that requires us to share what they are being saved from. And we want to underline that preposition from. It's not good to end a sentence with a preposition. Don't do this in your, in your uh, essay, college students. But I'm past that, so I don't care. I wanted to underline and I wanted to accentuate the preposition. We need to know what we're being saved from. We can talk about the good things Jesus provides, and we do that plenty in the evangelical church. But we need to be bold enough to talk about the flip side of that reality. If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, some of you in this room do not have a personal relationship with Jesus and you are actively in rebellion. Some of you in this room do not have a personal relationship with Jesus and you're not actively rebelling, but you're not receiving. You're doing things your way. So my prayer is that you'll be crushed. Now listen to me, I'm not saying this in a mean way, that you'll be crushed by the weight of your sin long enough to understand the need you have for deliverance in Jesus' name. Let me put that on the screen for you. We must be crushed by the weight of our sin long enough, long enough to turn from our sin. We're not saying this enough. Listen to me, Sunday school teacher. Listen to me. We have some preachers in this room. We're not saying this enough in our culture today. We're trying very hard to tiptoe a line and make everybody feel good. Like, for instance, if I want a bigger crowd, uh, according to the theories today, I have to just make sure I make you happy every time you come here. Well, oops. Uh, we, we kind of failed there on that score today. Nobody wants to hear this. Nobody wants to hear that they are in the direct line of fire of the wrath of God. We don't even sing songs that way. This isn't a, I'm not taking a shot at you, Nathan, or anybody else. We don't sing too many songs about the wrath of God being satisfied. Some of the old hymns do. Some of the old hymns are like written by the Puritans, and the Puritans meant business. You guys think I'm being serious? You need to go hang out with the Puritans. They will rip you to shreds. In fact, you can kind of tell the preachers in our day that are really influenced by the Puritans because, well, they wouldn't be, those preachers would not be fun at parties. They're always, always negative. 
And, and sometimes I want to say, you know, cheer up a little bit. Jesus loves people. You know that? So we don't want to go too far the other way. And I hope you know I don't. I also, when I was a young man, I saw a preacher one time talking about hell with a gleam in his eye. Like he was excited to see people go to hell. Listen, I am not at all excited about the prospect of judgment. Your life, your soul matters to me and to the people of this church. We share the gospel with you because we love your soul. And we believe that Jesus wants you to have a personal relationship with him. Let me just read to you another commentary on preaching. It's in Romans 10. It's a very famous passage, but let me read it to you. Beginning in verse 14, Paul says, How then will they call on him, in, on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And here we are. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We preach because faith in Jesus comes through the word of Christ. And all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? The judgment. The day of the Lord judgment that Joel refers to, that the book of Revelation talks about in great detail. All of these things are crucial, important. You need to have a relationship with Jesus. So what have you heard here this morning? One, you have heard without a doubt. The Bible tells us here in verse 21, back in Acts, Acts 221 that salvation is for all people every person in this room you have you have this beautiful opportunity to have a personal relationship with Jesus the second thing we've talked about here today is it takes courage to say yes to Jesus um, it is hard work to be a Christ follower there are mockers out there there is a voice in your head and in your heart telling you that you don't need Jesus. It takes courage to say yes to Jesus. And finally, as we've talked about, hell is a real place. Jesus saves you and gives you heaven. He saves you and gives you heaven, but he saves you from judgment and hell. These are important. No, these are the most important things in life. So why do we preach? What is the spirit of preaching? Do I preach so that you can learn more about the socioeconomic realities of Jews in first century Palestine? Well, you may be excited about that, but most of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Nor should you. That's boring. I can teach you all those things you want if you want to know them. But we preach because Jesus saves. We preach because we are sinners. We preach because if we do not turn from our sins, we will be lost forever and apart from God. Lost not in just darkness, but lost in the flame. There is so much at stake here. So let me end where I began. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? If you have a testimony of turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus, then the answer to that question is yes. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Here's how a testimony, here's what it looks like. You say, there was a time in my life where I did not live for God, and you don't have to give me all the details. I'm not a priest. You don't need to do confession with me. You just need to say, I was not living for Jesus. 
I came to believe in Jesus and trust in him because the word tells me to believe in Christ, to turn from my sins, to believe in the cross, to believe in the resurrection. And now my testimony is imperfectly, but to the best of my ability, I'm trying to live for Jesus. That's a testimony of someone who has a personal relationship with Jesus. So I am calling out to you, please receive Jesus as your savior. But this invitation is not just for those who need a personal relationship with Jesus. The church is in big trouble. Not just Ridgecrest, but every church is in big trouble if those who profess to have a personal relationship with Jesus have no desire to share their faith. A personal relationship of Jesus at some point should lead to a prolific witness for Jesus. Prolific means consistent. Prolific means constant. Prolific doesn't mean profound. It doesn't mean that you have the best gospel presentation. You do the Romans road better than anybody. That's not what I'm talking about. Prolific is more about just consistency, sharing the faith. If you are here, and many of you, I would say the majority of you, would tell me you have a personal relationship with Jesus, but not too many of us would dare say that our witness is prolific. And every Sunday, the, the invitation comes and goes, and nobody moves. We have a beautiful building. We have a great property. We have good bylaws. But we don't have much excitement. Not like we should. Too few people are on fire. Certainly not on fire like Pentecost. The only way I know to change that is by the Holy Spirit showing up. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, he warms up the relationship, the personal relationship we have with Jesus. And that warmed up personal relationship leads to an on-fire witness. Do you long for that? Do you? Are you hungry to see people saved? There is no better experience. The only way some of you are going to get out of your chill... The ice storm this last week is a pretty good illustration of your spiritual condition right now. You are cold unto Jesus. The only way the ice gets melted is if your heart gets warm. And your heart will get warm when you start sharing Jesus. Let's pray for God to break our heart in that way. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us, or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.